So a couple uh, of things before we get started. Uh, this semester in RUF, we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And last time I was here, um, I explained how the good life in God's kingdom begins with grace. It begins with the blessing. It's the first word he uses. And a couple weeks ago, as we've been going through it, Heath came down, and uh, I preached on anxiety. And so he said, hey, maybe you should do that for our church, and with the uh, holidays coming in, and the election, and <clears throat> it's also his suggestion. So if you don't like it, you can blame him for it. <laughs> but I'm not going to have any anxiety about it. Um, so a couple of caveats. One is this. There are biochemical reasons for our anxiety, for many of you, for some of you. Some of my students take medicine. I think those are legitimate. Um, I really do. And so I, uh, I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Because I think what Jesus is talking about here is actually the fear and worry that, lead, that is sinful that leads to anxiety. And so we have to keep in mind that we live in a fallen world. There are sinners and we are sinned against. And so fear and anxiety at times can be appropriate and that it can be like a smoke alarm or like pain that keeps you from a greater uh, tragedy. Um, but also at other times it can go awry. And so I think that's what Jesus is speaking into this morning about anxiety. is the sinful fear um, that leads to anxiety and worry. Um, and one other thing. <clears throat> as I get started, excuse me. Jesus in the passage says, do not worry three times. Do not be anxious. In the beginning, middle, and end. And can it can feel like Jesus is just saying, hey, would you just like stop being anxious? Like, would you just stop it? And it reminded me of the skit by Bob Newhart that maybe some of you are familiar with, where <clears throat> in the skit, Bob Newhart is a counselor, and a lady comes in for counseling, and he goes, okay, I charge $5 for five minutes, and after that, I don't charge anything at all. How does that sound to you? And she's like, that sounds great. I love it. Okay, he's like, okay, sit down. Well, you're going to talk, and I'm going to listen. Um, and so go ahead. And so she says, well, I'm very nervous about being buried alive in a box. And he's like, well, have you ever been buried alive in a box before? She goes, well, no. Has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box before? She says, well, no. He goes, Okay. She's like, but I'm just really nervous about being buried alive in a box. He goes, oh, okay. I'm going to give you uh, two words. I want you to write them down. Uh, I want you to leave with them here, incorporate them into your life as you leave here. And she's like, okay. So she gets out a pen and a paper from her purse. She puts it in her lap. She's ready. And he goes, okay, are you ready? She goes, yeah. She goes, stop it. <laughs> and she's like, well, excuse me? And he's like, stop it. Just stop it. Um, and it can feel like that's what Jesus is saying here to our anxiety. Hey, would you just stop it? But I actually want to suggest, and I, uh, I hope I can show you from this passage, that Jesus is not just saying stop it. He is. He's saying don't be anxious. But he's inviting us into this greater, greater life uh, in him. So um, as we read this text, I want you to ask this, this question then. What does Jesus point us to in order to deal with our anxiety? What does he point us to to deal with our anxiety? Uh, hear now the good, the good news of a God who doesn't just call us to not be anxious, but he actually invites us into something else. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word which he gives to you because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to be anxious. So let me pray for us. Father, be with us. Speak uh, through me and through your word to your people. Encourage them, build them up, um, and remind them that you love them. Uh, In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. So my wife has been in Fayetteville, my wife and I, have been in Fayetteville for about a year and a half now. And over the last seven, eight months, we were looking for a house. It seemed like this is going to be a long-term thing. And as we were doing that, we had tons of questions, uh, fears, anxieties, you might say. Uh, Where do we live? What school district is best for our kids if we send them to school? Uh, What neighborhoods are best? What's best for parking, for ministry, with having 30 students over to our house? Uh, What's going to be the best neighborhood for our kids to grow up in? These kind of anxieties. And we put five offers on homes. One was $10,000 over asking price, and we didn't get any of them. The market is crazy in Fayetteville. And so we decided to stop looking. We're like, we can't handle this. Well, in God's providence, two weeks later, of course, that's how it works. A home opened up. It wasn't put on the market. We put an offer in. It was accepted. And we closed December 13th. But, you know, we thought that would quell some of our anxieties, but it didn't. Our fears, our questions. I mean, now we go, well, is it big enough? Uh, are our kids going to like it? Uh, did we pay too much? Is this financially wise? Are our neighbors going to like us? Um, and you see the fear and anxiety just continue to happen. And I say that because uh, this passage was deeply consoling for me in these questions, but also all of us here have questions regarding the future that we are nervous about, we're anxious about. Uh, Will my employer let me go at the end of the year? How am I going to pay for my kid's college? Uh, Am I saving enough for retirement? Will my children grow up to embrace and love Jesus? Uh, And for some of you, uh, will my children come back to the faith and know that God loves them? Does my spouse, is she still going to love me in my old age um, after all these years? Uh, Does God love me even after I do this thing over and over again? Will a bubble burst and like in 2008 and I'll lose all my investment on my house? That's the question I'm asking even though I don't have one yet. Um, You know, will I have any friends that I can trust? Or for this congregation, you know, who's going to be our next pastor? Who's going to lead us and care for us and love us and pray for us? Do you hear the anxiety and the fears in these questions? And look, as a generation that's growing up that I minister to with college students, uh, they are a generation filled with fear and anxiety. Here's one uh, millennial who works in politics up in Chicago, and he wrote this piece, Charles Johnson did, in the Chicago Tribune. It's an opinion piece, and this is what he said. I have lived my entire political life with my country in a state of war, my entire career in an economy that feels hollow and debt burdened, in which anxiety and not future fortune is the overriding sentiment. That's how all my college students are feeling. They're, they're filled with anxious anxiety. And I tell them, it's, it's hard to not get wet when you're swimming, right? And, and it's hard to not be anxious in our, our current cultural climate. 
But what I want to say is Jesus knows that. Even the smallest of things he speaks to. That's why I love the Bible. And it speaks to our anxieties. And so he, has, he, he tells us two things that are going to help us process our anxieties. One is uh, the roots of anxiety. He's going to talk to us about the roots of our anxiety, which is uh, what he prayed, is that we focus on ourselves. And the other thing is he's going to show us the removal or the redemption of our anxiety, which is that we focus on God's love. So the roots of anxiety, focus on self and the removal, redemption of our anxiety, which is focused on God's love. So first, the roots of anxiety. We focus on ourselves. Um, Jesus, I think, gives us three things. And uh, I took this from a friend of mine. They're his points, but as I read the scripture, I think they're right. So I want to give him credit, but I'm also going to use them because uh, it's good. So here are the three points. First, uh, fear. Fear is a root of our anxiety. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Did you notice the orientation in, uh, of the verbs? That they are future-oriented. That, that fear of anxiety uh, is based on the future and, and the uncertainty of it. So we could define it in this way. Anxiety is produced by the fear of the uncertainty of the future. That anxiety is produced by the fear of the uncertainty of the future. You have to remember the audience for Jesus, his immediate audience, are his 12 disciples. And they are probably filled with a little anxiety and fear. Jesus, we left everything for you. You don't give us a paycheck. We don't have a health insurance plan. We don't have a 401k. Um, and, they're, and they're probably asking, are you the Messiah? Like, are you the one? Will you take care of us? And Jesus says, do not be anxious. That is fear. And for many of us, that's the case, right? Will we get married? Is our job pay well enough? Should we stay here or move on? Anxiety is produced by the fear of the uncertainty of the future, Jesus says. But also, he says, anxiety, a root of anxiety, is unbelief. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown, the oven, thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, Jesus just says it. This is one word in Greek, O you of little faith. And it describes the kind of person who is perpetually rocked by their circumstances. One who looks at their circumstances rather than God. And when you do that, it produces anxiety, Jesus says. You have little faith. Um, now, one commentator asks for balance, and he says, look, an absence of worry is irresponsible, right? Remember, sinners sinned against fallen world. There are things we should be afraid of in this world. But worry often in our lives can move towards unbelief and disobedience. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. That, that when we are anxious, we're actually acting as if God doesn't exist. That he's not king of this world. That he's not in charge of it. And so as someone else said, worry accomplishes nothing except to put God out of the picture. Um, that's what we were doing with our house. And that we focus on our circumstances and not on God. And so when we focus on ourselves, it overwhelms us. We remove God out of the picture, and Jesus says that's unbelief. Third, um, the third root and last root of anxiety, I think Jesus is getting at here, is control. So fear, unbelief, and control. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, food, drink, what we will wear, our job, power, sex, money. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. Um, we run after all these things. Um, for security, for control. These illusions that give us control, our job, our parenting, our kids, 
friendships, money, and, and especially, you know, the older I get as a man, this idea of security and financial security with a family, it hits home for me. Or as parents, if we can just get our kids to obey us immediately, I want to be so anxious all the time. Um, or for college students, for dating, they want to have the DTR, define the relationship talk. Okay, I don't know if she likes me, I don't know, but if we have this talk, then I won't be so anxious because I don't know if she'll like me or not. You know, we, and so we seek to control things. And so my seminary professor, Dr. Dan Doriani, said that worry and anxiety is a self-destructive state, state that we think we should be able to control. We think we can control things, but actually it's self-destructive. Because the more you try to control things, the more things you have to be anxious about that you can't control. Uh, and so anxiety is the fruit, but control is the root. And so I, I want to say we respond to control in two ways, I think. Broadly, flight or fight. Some of you probably heard this before. And some of us flight when we get anxious. We run away. We don't want to deal with it. We lock ourselves in a room. We build prisons, and we don't let other people in. And we go, I'm not going to let anyone know about this struggle. I'm going to act like it's not there. We flight. We run away. But others of us fight it. And we fight it in two ways. We fight, one, by becoming hyper-perfectionistic, right? We think that if we can control everything and be perfect, then we won't be anxious. Uh, Brene Brown, the great uh, psychologist and therapist, says that though people think being perfectionistic leads to success, it actually often leads, in her experience, it is a path, she says, to depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis. Because you think you can check off all your boxes, then you're not going to be anxious anymore. But what happens when things happen outside of your control? What do you do then? What do you do when my friend that I have gets cancer? What do you do when you have a miscarriage? What do you do in those moments? You think that life owes you a stress-free life when you begin to control things, but it doesn't happen, Jesus says. So control cannot be the way to free yourself of anxiety. But not only do we become hyper-perfectionistic, oh, sometimes some of us control others. Another seminary professor of mine of counseling said, and I'll never forget this, he said, controlling people are very anxious people. They seem confident, but they are ruled by fear. And the fear of failure produces worry, and it produces people who are controlling. Central to anxiety is the illusion that you control things or people, but it actually produces people who are selfish, blind, fearful, and lonely. So controlling people are very anxious people. Um, so the question that Jesus is asking us is, how do you control your anxiety? Do you fight it? Do you run away? Act like it's not there? Or do you fight it? You become perfectionistic. You get things done, baby. That's right. Um, and you control, you try to control other people's. Because you see that these three roots of anxiety, fear, unbelief, and control, all center and focus on the self. Like, we're in the middle of it. And I do this all the time. Life revolves around me. I've seen this as I've been trying to take care of my family. And everyone's needing me all the time. And I realize how selfish I am, and I can't control things, and I've been anxious. And this has been such a good passage for me. And Jesus is saying, you get tunnel vision, like a little toilet paper roll, which is why you're holding that, but you are. And you're, just, you're looking like this, and you can't see the bigger world. And so Jesus wants to take that out of our hands, thank goodness, and expose our vision to a greater vision. And this is what he's saying, stop focusing on yourself, but instead the removal and the redemption of our anxieties, point two, is actually the focus on God's love. That actually love is the only thing that will conquer your anxiety. This is what 1 John 4.18 says. If you remember, perfect love drives out fear. It drives out anxiety. And only love can do that. And so the question is, what is love? Um, there's this podcast called Modern Love where uh, they tell stories of love in our modern age. 
What is love? And the director and founder uh, goes to conferences and he talks about it and inevitably he always gets the question, well, what is love? Define it for me. And he hates that question, he says. Because how do you define love? How do you, how do you give words to love? And so he, he says what he eventually does is that he tells stories. That stories somehow communicate and define love better than mere words because love is shown. Love is not a dictionary definition. And so Jesus doesn't just tell us and define love for us. He actually shows it. That to remove our anxiety, he shows us God's love. Um, and he shows us two things about God's love. First, he shows us that the Father is generous. That the Father, Father's love is generous. Um, and he does this by telling us to look at the birds and the flowers. If you notice verse 26, he goes, uh, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Uh, remember, Jesus is on the side of the mountain. At this moment, maybe wild birds were flying overhead. And he's like, do you see those birds? Like, you see those dumb birds? Okay? They're just flying around. They don't know what they're doing. And yet I feed them. Like your father feeds them. You're more valuable than they. You know that, right? You know that. You're more valuable than squirrels and corgis and any sort of cute, cuddly animal you love. God actually loves you more than them. Like, you have to know that. That's what the Father shows. He's generous with birds and squirrels. Of course he's going to be generous with you. But also he says, look at the flowers, verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Uh, this word lilies is probably, uh, it's kind of an obscure word. Probably means something like wildflower. And again, that fits the context, the wild birds overhead and the wild flowers underneath on the mountainside. And Jesus is saying, do you see the wild flowers and the beauty right underneath your feet that you are trampling? That he's saying, do you see the beauty that I give and I care for on this side of the mountain? And that I actually give you beautiful things to quell your anxiety. Do you notice that? I did that for these flowers that you're trampling. How much more am I going to do it for you? What's happening here is Jesus is calling us to look at the Father's generosity to the world, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he loves birds and flowers, how much more does he love you? Oh, you have little faith. I mean, imagine if I watered the flowers on my front porch, but then I forgot to feed my own children, which didn't happen. I gave them donuts this morning, so they were good, okay? Um, or what if I, you know, made sure my grass was cut and the bushes were trimmed and the weeds were taken care of, but I forgot to clothe my own children, right? You would call Child Protective Services on me, which if you ever come to my house, we do clothe Eleanor, for the record, She's two years old. She loves to take her clothes off. Um, but we do put them on. Hopefully it's a face. Um, no, you, you would be like, what's wrong with you? Of course I'm going to do that, right? Because I love them. And Jesus says, stop focusing on your circumstances and see how vividly the Father cares for creation. How much more does he care for you? You're the crowning jewel of creation, Genesis 1 says. Sixth day. Everything goes to the apex to us, human beings. Or Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly angels? And you put everything in subjection, in subjection under his feet. Like, God says, you are ruling the world for me in my stead. Of course he cares for you. But also, Jesus says, um, you're not going to have your anxiety removed just by focusing on the Father's generosity, but also by focusing on the Father's grace. Um, if you notice in verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all things, Everything. It's what you find out in Revelation 22. All things will be added to you if you seek the kingdom. Why? Because you know who's in the kingdom, right? It's the king. 
In the kingdom is Jesus, the king. Love itself, incarnate, enfleshed. You have his love. And the older I get, as many of you know, if I have Jesus and his love, then I have what I need. And the word here for seek is an imperative suggesting an unceasing quest. The command implies that we are to seek him unceasingly. But it also implies that there's a kingdom that has been come and brought to earth. You can't seek a kingdom that's not there, right? How did the kingdom get here? Because the king first sought you. This is what the incarnation is about. This is what Christmas is about. It's the king seeking you out to establish his kingdom. Remember the first beatitude, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom is for the poor and needy. It's by grace. It's because the king has sought you out unceasingly. And if you think that you have to seek Jesus out in order to find him, you will always be anxious. This passage will never comfort you. Because you'll never know if you found him enough, if you're secure there. But if you know that the king first sought you and brought you into his kingdom by grace, and you didn't earn it, then that means you can seek him while you rest. You can seek him from a position of rest because he loves you and he sought you first. And Father McKenzie reminds us that sparrows and birds are some of the busiest creatures uh, on, the, on the planet. And so we got work to do, but you work from a position of rest and love, and not in order to earn it. And this is the heart of God's, uh, this is God's heart of redemption for you and your anxieties. That His love is actually what has to drive out your fears. He loves you more than birds and flowers. He really does. And you can have confidence because of the incarnation and the cross. That Jesus, what, John 3.16? I'll quote it every sermon because I love it. For God so loved the world that He sent Jesus into the world. The King sought you because of love. And this is the same Jesus preaching a sermon, is the same one in the Garden of Gethsemane, who's sweating drops of blood, and he's, he's anxious about the future, right? He goes, nah, you know, will you, Father, will you take this cup from me? I don't want to bear the sins of the world. I don't want to be taken away from you. We've dwelt in love from eternity past. Don't take this from me. Do you hear the anxiety and the fear in Jesus' voice? And do you know why he goes through with it? Because he knows the Father loves him. Because he knows the Father loves him. And you know also why? Because Jesus loves you. And so you know that in your anxiety, um, his love defines you. So, uh, and not your anxiety. A couple things, what this means for us. One is verse 27. Three things. Um, It says, who of you being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? Look, Jesus invites you to ask the question, okay, is being anxious, has that helped you or harmed you? He's kind of a pragmatist here. Um, Some of you are controlling, and in love, you and I both need to hear the rebuke from Jesus, that you cannot control your anxiety enough to get rid of it. And when you're doing that, you're getting God out of the picture. That is unbelief. And so he calls us to give up the control of trying to be God, but instead trust God. Others of you need to hear these words. Jesus says to observe and to watch and to look at the birds and the flowers. Um, Those words invite observation and contemplation and meditation. And so he's inviting us to, I mean, literally, go look at birds and flowers. Today, it still works. Go into nature, go on a walk after dinner, sit on your front porch. Apparently, some guys are at the lake this weekend. And and Jesus wants you to sit there and just observe, turn your phone off and go, wow, he's taking care of this nature. And he he loves me so much more. Um, And lastly, uh, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I don't agree at all. They are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can, so take them. 
They are our share in the sufferings of Christ. That some of you, like, look, we're going to get anxious, right? We're going to have fears. And Jesus, N.C.S. Lewis, says, bring them to the cross. Bring them to the King who has sought you. Pray your anxieties. Name them. Look, we're not fooling anyone, okay? We see it. We know you're anxious. Okay? It's okay. Um, but if you know that the King has sought you, you have the freedom and God's love to pray your anxieties to God and with other people. And I'd invite you to do that. That your anxieties do not define you, but your love, uh, the love of the Father defines you. That you are not defined primarily as an anxious person who has been loved by God, but you are a child of God who is loved, who sometimes struggles with anxiety. And if you switch those two around, you will always be anxious. God's love will never remove your anxieties. Um, and so we see that through the roots of anxiety, their fear, unbelief, and control, and Jesus says, don't worry, but the Father is generous and full of grace, and he loves you. And only this will remove your anxiety. So I'm going to close with uh, this story. And it's actually a story from Modern Love. And I'll never forget this story. Um, there is this couple who, uh, like my brother and his wife and many others that I know who had a difficult time uh, getting pregnant. And for two years they tried and eventually decided, well, uh, we're not going to get pregnant, let's try to adopt. And so they tried to adopt from a child uh, from China. And it, and it went through pretty quickly. And for nine or ten months, they had a picture of a girl named Natalie on their fridge. And every time they'd open the fridge, they'd get to see their daughter in China. Um, and they went over there, and the first time they met their daughter, they changed her diaper. And they noticed on the back, there was a two-inch scar above her spine, like on her spine, above her back. And they talked to the orphanage doctor, and they said, what, what happened? And they, and, well, let's get a CT scan. They got a CT scan, and they saw that a cyst or a tumor had been removed, and it was a hack job. It was a terrible job. And the doctor says, I think she might have spina bifida. She might eventually become paralyzed. And so they went to the local ER, the local hospital where they were at in China, and the same doctors did another CT scan and go, that's right, your child had a sister, a tumor removed, and she's going to develop spina bifida, and she'll be paralyzed by the time she's three or four from the, from the waist down. And at this moment, Elizabeth Fitzsimmons, the mother, and the, her husband, <laughs> filled with anxiety. They're filled with fear. And they said, we didn't sign this on the application. There's a place where you can ask for special needs. And we didn't ask for that. It's our first kid. We didn't know if we could handle it. We don't know what to do. And the director of the orphanage said, okay, I'm so sorry. This happens sometimes. I'm so sorry. We can actually get you another child. And we can leave Natalie here, and we'll get you a, a healthy child. And at this moment, as they're explaining this, Elizabeth, the mom, knows that her life's moment has been stilled at this moment. And listen, listen I'll, in fact, I'll read to you what she says. Imagine the fear and anxiety of what this is going to be to parent this kind of child. The unknown, the uncertainty of the unknown. And she goes this, Now we faced surgeries, wheelchairs, colostomy bags. I envisioned our home in San Diego with ramps leading to the doors. I saw our lives as being utterly devoted to her care. How would we ever manage? Yet how could we leave her? Had I given birth to a child with these conditions, I would not have left her in the hospital. Though a friend would later say, well, that's different. Mm-mm, it wasn't to me. And I pictured myself boarding the plane with some faceless replacement child and then explaining to friends and family that she wasn't Natalie, that we had left Natalie in China because she was too damaged, that Adil had been a healthy baby and she wasn't. How could I face myself? How would I ever forget? I would always wonder what had happened to Natalie. And I knew this was my test, my life's worth distilled into a moment, and I was shaking my head no before they had finished explaining we didn't want another baby, I told him. We wanted our baby, the one sleeping right over there. 
she's our daughter, I said. We love her. And they took that child home. What I love about that story is that what quelled the anxiety and the fear was love. It was love for their child. And they didn't know what was going to happen in the future, but because they loved that child, it didn't matter. And the story goes on, by the way. They got home. They got the CT scan. Their child didn't have spina bifida. There was nothing wrong with their child. The doctors had made a mistake twice in China. And as she finishes the story, she says that her daughter walked at 21 months old with a swimsuit on and a belly full of fish tacos. And uh, when she had finished the story, her daughter was three years old in a cotton dress and flower-printed sandals, and she would spin her daughter around, and her daughter, and she'd go, oh, Natalie, and her daughter would go, oh, Mama. And I love that story, not only because you have to see that love is what drives out fear, but because it's like, finally, like, we win one. Like, my brother and his wife, their first child they adopted died in Africa when they were over there. And I know that this is not always the case of how things are. I get that. But this is a picture of what will happen when the king returns. When Jesus, love himself in flesh, comes back to his kingdom and removes all our anxieties because eternity is here, the future is gone, and every moment is captured in one moment, and that's the present. And he makes all things new, all things right, all things like it says in Revelation 22. And that's why I love that story, and that's why I love this passage. Because Jesus says, I love you. Do not be anxious. The Father loves you. Let me pray for us. Father, there are so many things to be anxious about, to be fearful about. Hard things, real things. And you do not uh, dismiss those. You do not act like they're not a big deal. They are. They matter and they affect our lives. And they affect the trajectory of our lives forever. But you also tell us that that doesn't mean you don't love us doesn't mean you don't care for us, that you're not generous, that you're not gracious, because you sent your own son into the world. You gave up your own son for us. And he has sought us out. Mm, that is good news. So we pray that you would be with us as we go into this world to not be anxious, but to know that we are loved and to seek you because you first sought us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.